Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Today, Newfoundland author Donna Morrissey, a woman of great wit and insight. This onstage conversation was originally scheduled to focus on the best-selling author's latest and already acclaimed new novel, Rage the Night. But it expanded to Jung, Nietzsche, George Eliot, Shame, Love and sudden grief. Three weeks prior to the event, on August 16th, 2023, Donna's husband, Rick Ormston, died unexpectedly from a massive stroke. He was 71. Despite her heartbreak, Donna chose in the end not to cancel the event. It was held before a packed house of more than 300 people at the Central Library in Halifax. She began with a written piece explaining this decision. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, first, I just want to say that I have brain fog, and uh, it's a real thing. And I also want to say thank you so much. I am overwhelmed by the welcoming here. Life as each of you sitting here and I know can hit sweet and it can hit hard. And it recently struck me sweet, and it recently struck me hard. Carl Jung spoke of the three A's, ambiguity, ambivalence, and anxiety. Ambiguity, the newly mitted widow, and her fresh mitted book. Ambivalence, which one do I honor? Stay home, the widow, or go celebrate my creation. Anxiety, the need in me to rush forward, make a rash decision, and rid myself of the anxiety of having to decide. The test of a mature mind, Carl Jung said, and that of our spiritual maturity is to not make rash decisions to get rid of anxiety. It is for us to hold the tension of the opposites. And through the tutoring of my good friend, Jordy Dunn, who's out there somewhere, I did not rush. I thought long and hard about tonight. Should I? Should I not? It's not easy holding the opposite of the tensions or the tensions of the opposite brain fog. (laughs) But if you do, new possibilities can emerge. And this is what emerged for me. Choose neither. Honor both. So I stand before you, the newly minted widow and her newly minted book. And if I fuck this up, And if I start bawling, 
I can't imagine a safer place to do it than with each of you here tonight. And if I do start bawling, I invite you, you ball with me. <laughs> for as that brilliant poet John Donne once said, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. It tolls now for all of us. May God bless us all. We are calling this program Widowhood, Wisdom, and Words. Donna Morrissey was in conversation with Ideas producer Mary Link. Hello, my friend. Hi, my darling. <laughs> it was the most beautiful opening. Thank you. And thank you for coming into the light, as you said, about deciding to be here tonight. And we'll leave that for now. And maybe later we can talk a bit more about your new existence. But I do want to talk about Carl Jung, whom you've just referenced, the Swiss-born psychiatrist, philosopher, writer, thinker, and I know his writings are very important to you. I read a quote of his recently, and the quote goes by Jung, even a happy life cannot be without a measure of darkness, and the word happy would lose its meaning if we were not balanced by sadness. What draws you to Carl Jung? What draws me to Carl Jung is uh, once I fell into a dark hole, so black and so deep, I didn't know if I would be able to get out of it. And I looked for anything that would offer me some substance of hope, of light. And uh, I stumbled upon him. And I dove into his readings, and I found so much uh, brilliance, so much that was bigger than me, so much that I could never even fathom of understanding. But through my reading, I did grasp little things. I grasped that all of who we are and the all of all of our reading, all of these psychologists that we seek out, all of the counseling that we seek out, all of the talking that we do to our friends and ourselves— it's all for one reason, to gain consciousness, to become aware of who the f are we? <laughs> who are we in this earth and what are we doing? And that is why. How has his work changed you? It's changed me, you know, one of the things, and I've been working so much on this all my life, is uh, being aware of complexes because we are consumed by complexes. We are, our psyches are made up of complexes and it's these irrational matters of energy that sometimes, you know, when you get into a fight with somebody and you walk into the room, you go, holy Jesus, who was I back there? You know, and well, it wasn't you, it was your complex. And so... <laughs> So it's like, okay, what, you know, what was it in that authoritative voice that triggered such a complex in me? And so you go looking at a complex and you go understanding what it is and you understand that complexes are contagious. So if you have one that's based on authority, then that complex, when it's triggered, will trigger another complex, the one based on insecurity. And that one will trigger another complex, the one based on the little victim that needs to be helped and on and on and on it goes. And so the more we learn about who we are, and the more we learn about our behaviors, 
we can understand who we are and we can change some of those behaviors or maybe not, but at least we know when we're at fault. We know when we're to blame and maybe, maybe we can change some things, maybe not, but uh, consciousness, consciousness, you know. I love the line you wrote in chapter five and it is, quote, dreams are true when you are having them. Huh. Dreams are true when you are having them. And of course, for you, being a follower of Carl Jung, dreams are important. He analyzed dreams. What do dreams mean to you? Well, dreams teach us things that we don't know. They come to us and uh, they give us things that we don't know. And they offer us opportunities to learn those things that we don't know. They can help us map out what is happening today, what, is hap what happened yesterday, who am I in this model? And, you know, dreams are, dreams are, they map our unconscious, and they are, and they bring it forward. They map our collective unconscious and bring it forward. You know, things that we weren't even a part of comes forward through us. So dreams, you know, I may sound like a bit of a flake when it comes to dreams, but, um, and they're real. They're probably more real than everyday life because they're, they're archetypical. Well, know, I love that symbolic. line of yours, that they're, they're true when you're having them because they feel so damn real when you're, I mean, which as a child can be incredibly frightening. You um, know, when I say something like uh, dreams are real, when I wrote this book, I was kind of challenged. Can I, is it okay if I go off on a tangent? Yes, of course, tangent yeah. away. Yeah, when I first started writing this book, or uh, thinking about writing this book, I was very, very apprehensive about it. And I chose to write it in fiction as opposed to nonfiction. And uh, I chose to write it in fiction because uh, when we write fiction, like dreams, they don't deal with the specifics of, say, an historical event. They deal with the archetypical Dreams are archetypical. And when we write fiction, we write the archetypical. And so by doing that, you know, we jump over the specifics of a certain situation. And what we do is we incorporate the bones of everybody, everybody's story. So it's like when you write up the archetypes, you can all see your story in my story. And it is the um, emotion, the universal language of emotion That is the tissue that connects us all together, you know. So dreams, yeah, fiction, yeah. So there's truth in fiction. More truth in fiction than there is in, in, in true life. That's what Aristotle said. He was going to argue. <laughs> <laughs> One of the favorite things about the beginning of a book that I love, I love when an author thinks and puts a quote from another person off the top of a book. I just, it's one of my favorite things of all time. And they're usually, they're just such brilliant uh, quotes. And uh, before your book, before chapter one, you have uh, a quote, it's by Nietzsche. Can you read that quote for me? The quote, uh, when I read this, <laughs> God, it was so brilliant. Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He said, lonely one, you are going the way to yourself, and your way goes past yourself and past your seven devils. You will be a heretic to yourself and witch and soothsayer and fool and doubter and unholy one and villain. You must be ready to burn yourself in your own flame. 
How could you become new if you had not first become ashes? <laughs> yeah. We all need to be the phoenix at one point in our lives, right? Rising. We all need to feel the depths of going down in order to sort of, I, I suppose, figure out who we are. Well, you know, they say that we renew ourselves every seven years, every cell in our being renews itself, but, you know, it goes a little bit more than that, too, because I used to be proud of the fact years ago I would say, you know, oh, I'm, I haven't changed a bit. I've always been who I am. I've, I've never changed a bit. And I don't know why I thought that was a good thing to say. That's like, <laughs> sweet Jesus. You know, there's a saying that, please, God, do not let me wake up tomorrow morning, the same person that went to sleep the night before, you know, and that is my mantra. I pray to God that, yeah, I burn unto myself at least once every 10 years, you know, maybe every five as we start getting older, you know. Is that why you chose the quote? Like, why did you choose this quote? I chose it because uh, in Rage the Night, my character Rowan, he really does have to strip himself down because he's only 20 years old and he's an orphan and he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he's from. There are so many of us out here who are orphans who don't know who we are, where we're from. And is that important? Is it not important? What is your tribe? What language did they speak? What, you know, what do you know about yourself? And... Um, in the end, none of it really, really matters because in the end, you have to find yourself in yourself, not in your tribe, not in your family even. You have to find yourself within yourself. And this is why we have to become all of these things unto ourselves. Because Jung said that each of us, until we learn that the roots of our being is rooted in hell as well, we don't know who we are. Is rooted in hell? Yeah, we are. What does that mean? What does that mean is that you are a villain. You are the heretic unto yourself. You are the witch. You are, yes, you are the witch. <laughs> <laughs> we are all of those things. Remember, I can edit. We are, we are the fool and the doubter and the unholy one and the villain. You know, um, there's so much in literature that we know about ourselves, what evil is, you know. Uh, we all think Nazis were evil. Well, guess what? The Nazis were common men. They were bakers and they were shoemakers and they were mothers and fathers, you know. We have those roots in us. We go into the roots of hell. Yeah, sure we are, you know. And until we know that, we don't know who we are, you That's, know. Yeah. Can I, I'm going to just divert a bit from the book and from talking about that. I need you know, ideas. This is the first time you've been on ideas. Ideas is, I mean, you're well known in Canada. Uh, of course, your books sell internationally, but in terms of your biography, we have a large listening international audience. So I want to start your own journey from a small port on the west coast of Newfoundland to becoming an international bestseller, best-selling novelist in your early 40s. So can we start with the first decade a little bit? Tell me about your early life when did you decide to leave Newfoundland? When I decided to leave Newfoundland. And when your early life, you were yeah. born to... I was born in a small outport, uh, 14 houses or 12 houses, something like that. And as I'm always fond of saying, we were only allowed to speak to six of those. Because <laughs> the other six were the wrong religion. There's one of them sitting over there right now, Louise. <laughs> Louise Osmond from the lower beaches sits over there. I'm from my upper beaches. Um, 
Yeah, I lived there till I was 16 years of age, and that, that was my world. And then I moved. You know. And what were you just wait one sec? As a child, you're a bit you're a bit of a yakker now. You weren't. You didn't talk much, did you? No, I was totally introverted. Introverted. I got married, and then I was wounded into extroversion. Uh, but uh, I was very shy. I used to walk around like this, you know, with your your elbow against your oh, face. Yeah. You used to take up the hills because it's sort of set against a cliff. I've been there yeah. with you, and you would just go up there with your imagination. Yeah, I was always up in the woods alone because I, I, that's what I like. I, I was known as my sisters thought I was weird. You know, but I just like being alone. But they thought I was up there smoking cigarettes and hiding. You know, <laughs> I wasn't. I was just up there pretending I was the Lone Ranger's girlfriend. You know, <laughs> so, just having fun, you know? fantasizing about wearing a pink dress, but you know, building little communities, but but a river that ran down, little tributaries, making roads, making you know, I was creating my own world up there. I was. Quite happy. And then the hippies came. Then the hippies came. Well, you know, Ed Sullivan, all of that television, shocked the beaches to its core. And and yeah, off I went to Cornerbrook to be a hippie, you know, and uh, it was really a good decision. (laughs) It was one of my best decisions, you know. (laughs) What's really amazing to me now is that when I was doing the psychedelics back in Cornerbrook when I was 16 years of age and it was all illegal... Now, in 2023, they're bringing the psychedelics back as a way of therapy now, as a way of finding God, finding um, answers to your anxieties, your depression. I kid you not, you know this, right? Yes. It's a big old thing happening. You can now go get high on acid or mushrooms and all of that and... (laughs) They applaud you. They actually write your fantasies or did your you visions. En- did you enjoy it? I fucking loved it. <laughs> loved it. Oh, my God. Of course. You know? <laughs> Seeing curtains dance across the living room to waltz you around the block. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. You might say I found God really early. So you, you go to Alberta, like all good East Coasters do, to, to find work. But in your 20s, was what happened was another very pivotal thing in your, in your life. And it involves your brother, which you wrote a book called The Fortunate Brother about this incident. But it's, it was pretty dramatic and life-changing. Tell me about that. Well, all parties come to an end, you know, and uh, so I was riding hard and having a great time, and uh, Toronto, you know, was beautiful. I felt like I was thrown amongst the stars, you know, all these tall buildings and the lights and everything, and yeah, and then things went, went wrong in Alberta when my brother, who came because I was the cool sister, and, uh, and he got killed there. It was a work accident. It had nothing to do with me, but you know, the mind plays tricks, guilt. The, uh, I call them the twin sisters, shame and guilt. So yeah, that brought me down to my knees. I guess that might be my first humbling experience, yeah. I remember the first time uh, going to your house and seeing your, your writing desk, and there's a beautiful picture of him on your desk, just full of life and joy and handsomeness and twinkle and mischief. And Is it still there? The picture? Mm. Yeah, it's still there. There's a few others there as well now. <laughs> kind of, as the older we get, the more we chalk up. Yeah. In your early 40s, you were a single mom raising two kids, 
and then you become, and I'm air quoting right now, an overnight literary sensation. But that must be surreal for all what you went through to all of a sudden become this internationally renowned author. Did you, did you, when you wrote Kit's Law, your first book, did you have any idea what was going to happen to your life? Did you realize that it was going to change everything? No. No, God, no. I, I knew nothing. I was so naive, you know. I mean, I was so naive. Really, I sent the book to Penguin. I thought Penguin only published dead people, you know. It's like, <laughs> I knew nothing. I knew nothing. And, uh, and I found my way from there. And yes, it was a surreal ride. And at the time, I was so phobic and so insecure and freaked out and anxiety-ridden because I was in the middle of this abyss that I had fallen into. And uh, I couldn't deal with public speaking or flying or being in crowds or anything like that. And I wrote this book, and suddenly there's this spotlight. And uh, and it's like, you have to go here, and then you have to go to London, England. You have to go to New York. It's like, what? You know. So um, that's when I discovered pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yeah. The legal yeah. kind. The legal kind, you mean? The real kind. The, the good legal, ones. legal kind. Yeah. yeah. Yes, the legal kind. <laughs> Thank God. So this is your long journey, and it reminds me of a moving line in this new novel, Rage the Night, when someone is giving comfort to the main character, who is also on a long quest, and that's Rowan. And there's this quote from one, another character to him, and they're giving him wisdom because he has a long journey ahead of him to figure out who he is. And you write... The character says to Rowan, he last shall be first, Rowan, for it took them longer to get there. Which is just gorgeous. Has the life you've had and the zigzag, zigzag to where you are impacted your writing? Has it made you a better writer than if you had, say, gone to the normal route, did high school, university, English degree, boom, boom? Could you be the writer you are today if you hadn't done everything else you'd done? I, I don't know. Uh, I've often wondered about that. Um, we, we, we don't know when we walk through doorways which one is going to lead us to a different place or a better room or a more enlightened room. We, we just don't know. I, I stumbled blindly. I knew nothing. I, I, I just stumbled blindly. I, I think I was the most naive person in the world. And I remember one day this person looking at me and saying, for God's sakes, Donna, at some point you have to confess to the fact that you know something. You know? <laughs> Nobody can be this naive and be 40, you know? And... Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I, can't, I can't imagine not writing because even in grade f- two on the beaches, I want, I got an A for my essay on what I did for the summer, you know? And uh, Probably made most of it up knowing you. Uh, uh, Jesus, I lived on the beaches. I had to make it all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what are you going to say? I went outdoors. <laughs> I threw rocks at Ruby and Judy from the lower beaches. You know, of course you had to make it up. I rode ponies. I sheared my grandmother's sheep. Of course I did. I busted up the eggs in the hen's nest. Was I going to confess to that? You know, yeah. I'm rambling, but um, I don't even know what you asked. What would you ask? Where did that love for writing come from? Was it the storytelling culture of Newfoundland? Like, where did your love of writing and imagination come from, do you think? 
I don't know that either. I know that when I go to Newfoundland, every time I go on the beaches, uh, since the language is so inspiring. If you're conscious, you know, and you're listening to it consciously, like last couple, you know, last month I went home and, uh, and my cousin said to me, Donna, look, have some of this jam. It's, uh, it was rhubarb and jelly or something like that. And it's like, oh, it was so good. And me and my cousin, you know, we, it was about 60, and we're both slathering the jam on the bread. And we went through like five life slices of bread within five minutes. And my cousin looked at me, he said, jam is some hard on the bread, isn't it? You know? <laughs> make it up, you know. So, no, so I think if you're conscious at all of culture, you know, you, 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 you hear this, it has to inspire you to go write it down. You're listening to Widowhood Wisdom and Words, the irrepressible Donna Morrissey on Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Donna Morrissey's seventh and latest novel is called Rage the Night. Let's return to Donna Morrissey on stage in Halifax with Ideas producer Mary Link. Okay, let's get to your novel. And the main character is an orphan. It's such a powerful literary use. What is so compelling about the use of orphans? Is, is it sort of like you were saying before, that we're all kind of alone? Is that part of it, or...? I think, you know, I, I was always curious about my uncle. His mom died when he was a little boy, and he had two sisters, and his father put him in an orphanage in St. Anthony. So that part of the story was kind of inspired by that. And he grew up an orphan, in an orphanage. And when he was 16 years of age, they gave him $2, and he left, and he bought a bologna. And he walked back to Jackson's arm. I don't know how long it took him with the bologna in his arms and offered it to his father to take him back. Yeah. And it was a story that has always haunted me, the orphan, who he was, how he must have hungered for his family while he was there, for his mother that died, for, you know, and is, you know, there's a whole thing in there about who we are, where did we come from, how far back do our lineage go, who, what are the stories that we tell, you know. And um, at some point, we learn, as Rowan learns, that we are the one tribe beneath the stars. We are the one tribe. We cannot go back further than God. We cannot go back further than creation. We go, we carry all of this within us. We carry thousands of years within us. There is no family 
you know, we are a global tribe, you know, yeah. The world would be a lot better if we figured that one out. Well, I, I guess um, one of the, the things that Rowan discovers is that it being alone, it certainly has its advantages, and, um, but that sense of loneliness, but he, he, he never ever felt alone. He always felt one with his surroundings when the sun fell about him without shadow, you know. And then as he was to learn that families are riddled with strife. You know, families have fathers and mothers who are angry, who have angst, who fight, who are estranged, that you don't find peace and suddenly a great sense of belonging and wholeness because you find your family. You probably find more strife than what you had before you found your family, you know. So, so we kind of idealize it, rationalize it. Actually, a lot of kids who do find their families after uh, they become adults just kind of walk away after a while because they're just strangers. It's funny, a friend of mine I was just talking to you last weekend, and her mother's from a family of 10. She was adopted. And she's just too afraid to ever find the family. Doesn't want her kids to look into it, doesn't want anything, and she's in her 70s now. And I think, oh my goodness, I'd be so curious, but I think she's afraid. So your uncle, who went to the orphanage, that was in St. Anthony, that was associated with Dr. Grenville, right? Yes. No, with Rowan. With, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, yes. your uncle, then Rowan, right? With yes. Rowan. Yeah. And so tell us about Wilfred Grenville. He's very famous to Newfoundlander. He's a British missionary. He came over in the, what, 1800s? Yeah. The 18, turn of the century back then and saw the dire need for medicine and doctors and all the old ports and everything. But tell me a bit about him because he's a main character. He's sort of the mentor and father figure to Rowan. Yes. He, he was, uh, well, yeah, of course, you know, there are stories about his arrogance as well. But, you know, he was this English dude that came in a ship and uh, a medicine, a medicine ship. He was a hospital to Labrador and all these outports in Newfoundland that had no doctors, no roads, no way of getting help for their, for their needs, their illnesses. And, and there were a lot of illnesses, scurvy, pneumonia, and um, what is it, lung one? Uh, tuberculosis, TB. TB. I mean, it was a lot, it was rampant. And this doctor, he would go in his hospital ship and he would just get in a rowboat and he'd row into the coves. And he'd go in with his bag of medicine and he'd visit the poor and he'd bring them. He would sometimes roll back naked to his ship because he gave everything he had on him to the people, you know, because there was such poverty. So he was really, really a heroic figure in uh, that part of Newfoundland back in those days. He still know. is. I mean, there's colleges named after him. There's yeah. tons of, yes. Yeah. 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 I don't know how um, known he is to the rest of Canada. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but he's pretty well known. He's very well known and revered. And he's this great character who's constantly giving wisdom to Rowan. And then Rowan finds out about this gravestone that has his, allegedly his mother's name. And he finally he gets a sense of that he has a past or he has a family. There are so many compelling themes that run through this book, including the concept of shame. And Rowan writes at one point, or you write for Rowan at one point, about his mother, who was unmarried when she gave birth to him. Why did you hang your head, Francis Elizabeth, when the wicked know nothing of shame? That was a killer line, man. 
And another quote about shame. Shame doesn't kill. I've buried myself more times than you have with its shovel. It keeps bringing me back more humbled than before. Talk to me about shame. I mean, shame and guilt, kind of the hand in hand, but talk to me about what shame means to you and the power of shame. Yeah, shame and guilt, the two ugly sisters. Well, there are two emotions that don't give us anything. They're useless. They are two useless emotions because they don't feed us in any way. They're based on, you know, trauma. Uh, um, they're based on perceptions that we make of ourselves and who we are in these situations that are probably so traumatizing that, you know, we, we we're just not able to see clearly and we carry this shame. It sits on our shoulders. It carries us through life. And most times, sometimes we don't even know that it's there. We don't understand that we're feeling shame. We don't know why we don't feel deserving of love or deserving of this. You know? Again, to go back to our earlier conversation about Jung, part of getting counseling and talking to people and sharing our stories is understanding those things that we carry that we are not even aware that we're carrying, like shame and guilt. And I know it so well. I know it so intimately because when my brother got killed on my watch and I was 23 years of age, you know, I just internalized shame. I internalized guilt because he was with me and the big sister. I should take care of him. Suddenly he's dead. Well, and if he's dead... What did I do? I got to bring him home in a coffin. Who the hell wouldn't feel shame and guilt, you know? Who wouldn't when you're 23? You have no defenses, you know? And so it took a long time to understand that and to recognize those feelings and to make peace with them, to honor them, to make peace with them and to set them aside and say, no, you don't, you don't belong here. How, how did you let go of shame with your brother? Because he, he wanted to come to Alberta. Your parents didn't want him to come. You encouraged it. So then he came within the first week or something. He, a machine pushed him up against the wall, and he died tragically. So, you know, you had encouraged this sort of flight of freedom. How did you finally let go of the shame? Well, it's kind of, you know, you, you look at the bigger picture and you know that the story didn't just happen with your brother standing there and getting killed by a truck. It didn't just happen in that moment. It started happening moments before, days before. It started happening that morning as he was getting ready to go to work. It started happening in Newfoundland when he was packing his bags to leave. It started happening with my mother and my father fighting over him, going or not going, and my mother wanting him to do this, and my father. It started before he was even born when my mother met my father. You know, we are all of these things colliding in moments and moments and moments and creating these explosions of life wherever we go to go back. How would you change what happened that day in that one moment? How far back in time would you have to go to prevent that from happening? There's a lot of butterflies. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think it was through understanding the big picture of who we are, the universe, the energy, God. And, um, and then you learn to understand that you're just a player and you had no control. We have no control over these little events that happens, you know, on our watch because it started happening before we were even born probably. And it was all hating for us this one moment for all the years leading up to it, you know. And, uh, and you learn to forgive yourself 
for who you were in that moment. You learn to forgive yourself for the fact that you were there because it wasn't your fault. You know, life put you there and it was a natural outcome of everything that you've ever been, you know. Oh. I love the whole concept of forgiveness. I remember once a line someone said, we have to come to a stage in life where we forgive our parents and our, our parents forgive us. I mean, we're, it's, it's a two-way street. We're all involved with shame. We're all interlocked. And forgiveness is a way of letting go of it, too. Um, so Grenville has a huge influence on Rowan, and Grenville's often quoting from the Bible. And there's this one quote that comes up maybe three times, I think, in your book, which is, us mortals, we are no more than grass of the field. The wind passes over and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. So why was that such a significant excerpt from the Bible? Well, it's, it's, it's nice that you picked up on that one. Uh, I just really, really like that because we are so... Uh, we are so impermanent, you know. We're just here, and when we look at the clock of time and the history of who we are, we are a blink, you know. And so, yeah, and then it knows us no more. And um, I just felt that in this book, Raised a Night, where everybody on that ice is now looking towards mortality, you know, um, it would be fitting that Rowan would remember that. It would be fitting that he would remember those words that we, we are we are mortal in this flesh. You bravely took on a, a key topic that is interwoven to this book, which is a, the Great Sealing Disaster of 1914, where 132 men were left on the ice, uh, unbeknownst to the various captains, and 77 of them froze to death and uh, 55 survived. But this is, is not so well known in the rest of Canada, but Newfoundland, it's so sacred, right? That's what you've said. It's so sacred. To take it on is daunting. Just give a little background about this, the ceiling disaster and why you decided to take it on in a novel. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in the fact that when I first started writing, I was like 40, 41 or something like that. And, uh, and as, you know, I... That was the story I wanted to write. I had read the book uh, Death on the Ice by Casey Brown, who uh, you know wrote an incredible story. Nonfiction. Nonfiction. Yeah. And uh, I was so haunted by that story. And, uh, and I was haunted by the story of my uncle, the orphan. And I was haunted by another story that my father often told me. Um, my father... He had this experience once where he was like, on the ice at night with his, uh, his buddy. And they were seal hunting. So there were two or three boats, and they were all gone down the bay, and they were on the ice, you know, using their boats to leverage themselves over the broken ice pans. At one point, my father, he lost his boat. And so they were on firm ice now, but his boat had vanished or something. And him and his buddy were walking side by side because they knew their, you know, their other hunting partners were further down. And they knew that they would meet them eventually because they couldn't go back that way. And it was nighttime, and they didn't know where the edge of the ice was. And it was very scary for them. And uh, as they were walking, they saw this light coming towards them. 
And so they figured it was their, uh, their hunting partners, you know, with a flashlight, because it moved like a flashlight, like that. And so they got closer and closer, and Dad and them started walking faster and faster, and then as the light got closer, Dad started yelling out, hey, hey, you know, and, but there was no sound coming back. And so Dad thought it was their, you know, friends just kind of having one on on them, just kind of spooking them out or something. And Dad was saying, you know, bastards, you know, it's like, you know. So anyway, they get closer and closer, and then the light was directly in front of them, and Dad said he started getting on, on nerve because he, he couldn't hear their footsteps or anything, and he was really getting angry, and then the light was there, and it just kept on going, and it passed him. And there was nothing, just a light. And so he was severely rattled by that, who wouldn't be? And it was years after when we would be somewhere camping or something and Dad would say, hurry up, hurry up, zip down the tent, don't let the light in, don't let the light in. And he would say that sometimes in the room, hurry up, close the door, don't let the light in. One day I said, what the fuck is he talking about? (laughs) Don't let the light in. And uh, Mom told me the story. And I, I asked him about it, and he said, this is what happened. And so I was always intrigued by that as well. So well, back then, I wanted to write this story that would incorporate my, my uncle, the orphan, you know, and I wanted to talk about that white light, and I wanted it to incorporate this death on the ice. And that was all, and I had written a thing at that time. I had written nothing. And so when I look back, I'm just kind of impressed. <laughs> really, Donna, you know? And uh, anyway, uh, I didn't do it, of course. I didn't know how. But then eventually I wrote Kit's Law and then other things. And then I went to my family. And now towards, I don't know, it's like I'm winding down. I mean, something's got to happen. I had cancer and a heart attack. And my husband's dead. I'm going to die. You know, it's like suddenly it's like this is all that's left this was this book. And um, I thought, you know what? I could do it now. I could do that now. And, uh, but I was scared because it was a very sacred story. And Newfoundlanders are very, very possessive over that story. Sometimes it's like that, you know, uh, a story, it captures the collective. And it did that in Newfoundland. This story captured the collective. And, it be, and, and we guarded it. And even recently, they put up a statue and people were angered by it because they put up a statue of the event, and it's like, well, you weren't there back then when they were all perishing, you know, but you're going to put up a statue now, are you, for the tourists coming in? So it was like that, and I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, do I dare touch this in fiction? Like, am I exploiting the story? Oh, then something interesting happened. I was reading another book about it, and it was written by Gary Collins, uh, a Newfoundland author and a wonderful, wonderful man. And he had talked to the last surviving sealer from that disaster, and his name was Cecil Molan. And in Gary Collins' intro, he talked about that conversation with Cecil. And one of the things he wrote was, keep telling our stories, boys. Just keep telling our stories. Don't let them die. Don't let our stories die. Keep telling our story. And I read that, and I was like, okay. And then I took the next step, and I got in contact with Gary Collins, because uh, he wrote a book, uh, Left to Die, which was about the very same incident, but his was nonfiction. And he was just such a warm, big-hearted human being. 
and he encouraged me to write, and he became my mentor through the writing of that book. So um, however it is received by anybody, it doesn't matter. I was given permission, and uh, I took it, and I wrote it, and so glad that I did, you know? And you did the most incredible job. Tell about the men coming from around the bay in March and the long lines. You did this great image in the book, the long lines as they would walk down to St. John's to get onto the harbor to be steely. And some of them had already survived other terrible events. So they weren't actually skipping down, but they wanted the to survive. Yeah, it was survival. It was the only way back then that these men could have money in their pocket. You didn't get money from fishing or in, or logging, you know, you because you had this contract with the merchant, and the merchant would give you supplies, and so you were always in debt. But a seal hunt paid cash, so it was the one way that these these fishermen could get money in their pocket to buy new nets, to buy new this, to buy new that. They could get money, and it was a seal hunt. And uh, sometimes they came back with nothing. You didn't get the seals, you didn't get nothing. Sometimes you came back with $25 for five, you know, the conditions were horrific, horrific, you know. Uh, but they were such a, they were such a, an incredible breed of men, you know. They were strong, they were fierce in their loyalty to each other, and they were honorable, and they were true. And I think the one defining thing we do as a species is we tell stories. And we've always told stories. And while they might be thought of, as this book is, as entertainment, they do something far more deeper than entertain us, you know. They are actually passing along our culture as we write them, you know. They are bringing up those things that are near and dear to us and that is vital and core to who we are. So it's not just storytelling, you know. It's the sharing of a culture. It's showing who, who we are as a people. And the men would be in the belly of the boat and they would have hardtack and water and barely anything to eat. And, and some, like one of the characters, he was on a previous one and he was haunted by what had happened. Yeah, these men, they would survive these horrific hunting trips, but then they would just go back again the following year. I mean, the And they courage. would treat it like... Courage you, or desperation, I guess. You, you write in the book about these men that, quote, they are animals, all of them, bred into a wealth of instinct, but caged by poverty and discipline. Yeah. I thought that was a really powerful summation of these incredibly bright, interesting, soulful, kind, in many ways, rough men who are just treated like, well, they're treated like animals, too, by the conditions. But they bond. There's an incredible bond between them in the story and also among Newfoundlanders, right? Yes, they were bonded. And they were, again, caged by their hunger because they couldn't speak out about the the horrific conditions on the boat. I mean, they would be sleeping for five weeks, you know, every night in the same clothes that they woke up in in the morning, you know, and they would be encrusted with blood. They would probably be just eating hardtack for, you know, for weeks and days and days. They would go without a shower. And they couldn't protest. They couldn't argue because if they did, they wouldn't be accepted on the next ship out. So they would lose a means of making 20 bucks for their family and that 20 box would be detrimental if they lost it. So, um, so, so, tell, so caged, yeah, caged by hunger. So, so Wes Keen, the young one with the, the wooden boat, who's having, keeps getting stuck in the ice, keeps getting stuck in the ice, and his, his father's ahead, 
uh, Abe Keen, who was described as the greatest and meanest ceiling captor ever stood on the bridge of a ceiling ship. And he usually was the person who got out first and came back. But talk about, there was two days on the ice. Talk about what happened. It was a warm day, relatively speaking. So they left their coats behind and they were lightly dressed and they go out on the ice and then what happens? Well what happened is after they got on the ice and again it was a warm day so they didn't weren't really dressed you know they left their warm coats behind and they walked and again it was a, a decision for them to go get seals that was made out of greed because they would have had to walk like three or four miles over broken pan ice we're not talking level ice there. We're talking jumping pan from pan. Um, really tremendously difficult journey over broken ice flows and to get to a ship that they couldn't even see at this point. And when they got there, they were to then hunt and then uh, spend the night on that boat because they would not be able to get back to their own ship. It would be... the. There wouldn't be time for that. They were sent to, they were, the, the son sent them to his father's uh, steel boat. Or- yeah, so anyway, when they did get to the other boat uh, and they were allowed on for a quick lunch because they had, you know, and then they were quickly sent over the side again and the lunch was like uh, uh, cold tea and hardtack and they were sent over the sides again and uh, there was a storm coming up and it was starting to snow and everybody knew there was a storm coming but the ceiling captain, uh, Keen, who was a really, really hard master, the most successful ceiling captain of all time, and who was said person. that he would he yeah. would cut his mother down to get to a seal. Uh, he sent them all over the side so he could get his own men out there and start harvesting. So he left all of these men alone on the ice with the storm coming, and um, because of that, they were lost, and they became lost, and it, the cruelest storm of the season came up. And for two days and two nights, they were under the harshest of conditions, you know, minus 20, no coat, on open ice, nothing blocking the wind from barreling at them. And they were just, uh, they had to walk. Actually, maybe now would be a good time to do that reading. Um, So this is second day, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, so he's on the ice and they wake up the following morning. They've been lost now for a day. So dawn creaks its granite light through the chilling high winds and drifting snow. Rowan wraps his arms around himself, shivering from the bitter cold, his heart numbed by the wreckage of broken men crawling, limping, staggering over the ice before him. To lie down is to die. That is their mantra. Sleep while you walk, boys. Wake when you fall. Sleep while you walk. Wake when you fall. To lie is to die. To lie down is to die. Uncle Jack sings, his voice starting to hoarsen, sounding rougher than an anchor dragging the ocean shore. Abide with me, O God, abide with me. The men sing with him. They sing to keep themselves going. They sing to banish the cries of the dying. They sing to banish their own fear of dying. They sing to banish the night and banish thoughts of their weakening legs and frozen fingers and hungry bellies. And their songs are their tears and their voices are as one and it is louder than the winds. 
The sun grows into a cold, whitish light that sparkles through the sifting snow, burning red against Rowan's eyes. Somewhere, he knows, there is a fire that burns orange. Somewhere, there is something other than this white. Somewhere, there is that fire, and it will smell of burnt sugar. Somewhere, there are rooms that sing with color. He trips and falls. He pushes himself back up with fear. To lie is to die. To lie is to die. Perhaps you're scared of dying, Ela once said to him after he said he was scared of nothing. Everybody's scared of something. No, no, dear Ela, he now says. It is not death I fear. It is life. It has always been life. Grandfather, old dancing beer, I hobble as crippled as you, yoked to the hot metal plate of my own foreboding. Okay. We will end this program where we began with the loss of Donna's beloved husband, Rick Ormston. He had passed away only three weeks earlier on August 16th, 2023, the result of a massive and sudden stroke. He was 71. An audience member asked for a memory of Rick. Well, there's one story that springs to mind instantly. Uh, you you won't even find it funny, but uh, the food. <laughs> we we always slept back to back, or my belly to his back. We had a king size bed, and we used as much of it, and uh, so. This one night we had a fight, and uh, I'm over on my side, and he's like an half an acre away on his, and he snuggles in, and there's nothing of me next to him, and he said, not even a foot. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to funny. He was a wonderful, sweet man, and he loved you and loved your spirit so, so much. One of the most profound things I've read lately that really spoke to me was a line by George Eliot, and she said, it is only during our most agonizing partings do we really study the depth of our love? We should change that. Change it. Thank you, Donna. Thank you very much. You are listening to Widowhood Wisdom and Words with author Donna Morrissey. She was in conversation on stage in Halifax with Ideas producer Mary Link. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or read an excerpt from Donna's new book, Rage the Night, go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Pat Martin and Gabby Hagorilis. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.